Okay, our scripture can be found in the back of the bulletin. This is, as we go through the book of John, this is John 8, 1 through 11, uh, a very famous story. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Well, at considerable uh, expense and effort, I have managed to obtain uh, individual tapes of each of your deepest, darkest sins. And we are going to show them on the screens in alphabetical order. So this is going to be a wonderful time of revelation uh, for everyone. Uh, of course, I do not have said tapes. But uh, we all have things that we are ashamed of secret things that we've done, that we've thought, uh, maybe that we've said when it was just ourselves, uh, the side of us that Ken talked about that we don't want to reveal to anyone. Because we think if people knew uh, what those were, how would it change the way that they thought about us? And so we put on our masks and live uh, with these secrets. We also ask the question in our heart of hearts, if God knew who I really was, what I had thought, what I had done, what would he think of me? And so we also put on masks. We play these games with God where we tiptoe around him, where we don't want to reveal our heart of hearts because we are concerned, fear what it is that he would say or think about us if he really knew. Well, we have the opportunity here to see a woman's deepest, darkest sins laid bare before the world and before God. And we have an opportunity to see how the world responds, but we also have an opportunity to see how Jesus responds. See, the world says, if God really knew what you had done, he would surely turn his face away from you and abandon you. But Jesus shows us in the way he responds to this woman that his grace is greater than our sin, his forgiveness is greater than our shame, and as such, we can trust him with our hearts. So we're going to look at this passage. A quick caveat, if you look at your Bible, some of your Bibles have a little asterisk over this passage. And it says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts 
do not have John 8, 1 through 11. And that is true. The earliest, some of the earliest manuscripts do not have the account of the woman caught in adultery. So you may be asking the question, why am I preaching on it? Well, I'm preaching on it for a couple of reasons. One is that the vast majority of manuscripts do. It's Bruce Metzger, the uh, New Testament commentary, who writes, This account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church. The story certainly fits in the context of the book of John. So we have to ask the question, why was it left out in some of the earliest manuscripts? Well, here is a plausible reason. The ancient uh, uh, Near East uh, was an honor-shame culture. It still is today. And for centuries, traditional Middle Eastern culture has understood the honor of the family to be attached to the sexual behavior of its women. Thereby, in conservative traditional village life, women who violate the sexual code are sometimes killed by their families, were killed by their families. And so it's quite possible, plausible, that people said to some of the people who were copying down the earliest manuscripts, please leave out the story of this adulterous woman. I don't want my daughters committing adultery and telling me Jesus forgave this woman and therefore you should forgive me. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus did forgive this woman. So we're gonna, I'm going to preach on this text and we're going to dig in uh, to it. We're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the trap that the Pharisees laid for Jesus. Number two, we're going to look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus' response to the woman herself. So let's begin by looking at the Pharisees' trap. We see Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then he came back uh, into the temple. Jesus had been at the Feast of Tabernacles. He had said, if anyone comes to me, let him, is thirsty, let him come to me. And uh, he had caused a lot of trouble. Uh, and the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were trying to arrest him, but they were afraid to do so because of the crowds. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they plan a trap, a way to take him out. And it's a, it's a twofold trap. They plan to either discredit him or they plan to have him removed altogether. Watch how they do it. Verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus comes to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught. It is the Sabbath, and a crowd has gathered around Jesus, and Jesus is teaching in the outer courts of the temple. And it's right then and there that the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who has been caught in adultery, and they place her in the midst. Now, we have to ask the question, how do religious professionals catch a woman in the act of adultery? Furthermore, adultery is rather difficult to do alone. And if she was caught in the act, where is her partner? Leviticus 20.10 says that both the woman and the man should be put to death. And so if these Pharisees and teachers are so zealous for the law, where is the man? See, the truth of the matter is they didn't care about the law. They had set themselves up. They had set this up to capture this woman to bring her before Jesus, and the woman is simply bait for their designs. 
They say to Jesus, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're putting Jesus in what's called a catch-22, a rock and a hard place. And the rock is this, that if Jesus says, does, uh, says well, let her simply go free, he's saying that he doesn't care about the law. In other words, the people will say, well, he doesn't care about the law. They're trying to discredit Jesus, that Jesus doesn't uphold the law of Moses. But the hard place is this. They're in the temple courts, which is about 35 acres. It's a huge area. And around the exterior of this area was a walkway. And attached to the temple courts was a Roman uh, garrison. Because it was always said that unrest began in the temple. And so the Romans would patrol the temple courts. A a whole Roman legion, literally 5,000 Roman soldiers, would patrol the temple area to make sure that nobody got out of hand. If Jesus said to stone this woman, and they did, a riot would break out. Now, it's against the law for a Jewish person to put... Uh, somebody to death. And so the Romans would be asking the question, who started this? The answer would be Jesus, and they would arrest him and take him away. In other words, he would get taken out. So if he decides to carry out the law of Moses, he will be arrested. If he opts to set aside the law of Moses, he will be discredited. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, before I give you Jesus' response, I have to ask the question, How did the religious leaders get to this point? How did they get to the point where they saw this woman as a tool, where they used the law as a weapon? See, the truth of the matter is they didn't worship God. They worshiped power. God was a means to power and prestige and authority. Now, my guess is it didn't start out that way for them. That when they were younger and they entered into Phariseeism or whatever it was, that they wanted to serve God. They wanted to obey God. But somewhere along the way, God became a means to something else. Their religion twisted their hearts. The God that they twisted and invented and followed had no love. And he had no grace. He took everything and gave nothing, including their humanity. Now, you and I may say to ourselves, I'd never become that. To which my response is, watch out. Is Jesus the end goal of my worship? Or is he a means to something else that I want? I am a Christian because he makes me respectable in society. I am a Christian. I follow him because he makes my wishes come true. I am a Christian because he makes me financially prosperous. This is idolatry. The only reason to follow Jesus Christ is because he is the king and because he is who we were made for. 
You see, false religion twists our hearts and it becomes a tool to bludgeon people with. Some of the cruelest people in the world have been religious people. You know, Joseph Stalin was a seminary student for five years. Here's how you know that religion is twisting you. People become tools. They're no value to you. They're pawns. So do you value people for who they are? Or are they simply a means to an end? Do you have forgiveness in your heart toward others when they wrong you? Or are your enemies simply people to be destroyed? Is your reputation more important than Christ? And in the end, it's about me and what I want and how I want and when I want. See, that's what the world thinks religious people are. Don't become like that. Don't become like these people. How do we not become like these people? Well, listen to how Jesus responds. This is my second point. Jesus responds to the Pharisees. So they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus starts writing on the ground with his finger. Now, it was the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work. And it was actually against the Sabbath law to write. Unless, of course, you were writing on the ground. Because the wind would blow it away. So it was not considered work. See, Jesus is playing their game. He's saying, I know the law. I honor the law. But he wrote something down. Now, the question is, what did he write? Plenty of scholars have spilled, you know, barrels of ink asking this question. The Bible doesn't say. But if I was to try to think what it was that Jesus had written down, this is what I think Jesus wrote down. Guilty. Stone her. Jesus answers their question. He upholds the law. But notice he doesn't say it. He avoids their trap with the Romans. The Romans can't see what it is that he wrote. But right after he writes this, guilty, he does something amazing. Verse 7, he stood up and said to him, them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, Jesus turns it on them. Let him who is without sin be the first. He's speaking to them as individuals. See, if Jesus just stood up and said, stone her, and the mob starts to do so, nobody's responsible in the crowd, only Jesus. But Jesus instead says, I honor the law of Moses. I'm willing to go to prison for obeying the law. Which one of you leaders are? If one of them steps up in the beginning, the Romans are going to step in and they're only going to ask two questions. One, who started this and who threw the first stone? See, Jesus already knew the answer, that none of them were going to step up because they don't care about the law. 
Further, the way he asks the question stops them from acting. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw the stone. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. They all knew that they were sinners because the law said so. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. See, if any of the religious leaders were to claim to be without sin, they would bring shame on themselves. And so after saying this, he once more bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, what does the crowd do in the midst of uncertainty? In that culture, in the midst of uncertainty, they look to the eldest for guidance. And what does the elders do? The crowd turns to see if the elder has the courage to respond to Jesus' challenge. And from the oldest to the youngest, his opponents withdraw, humiliated, humiliated. Why was Jesus writing again? It was actually very kind of him. He's giving them the opportunity to save face. See, people are watching Jesus as the oldest withdraw one by one. Jesus puts all their attention on himself and off the woman and gives the elders an opportunity to withdraw. And the reason Jesus does this is because he wants to save the woman. And they all withdraw until none is left. So notice what Jesus has done. He has simultaneously upheld the law of Moses and saved the woman. Since the woman has gotten there, Jesus has done nothing but take the attention off of her and put it on himself. See, Jesus shows that he is the true lawgiver, and Jesus is just. You may think it harsh if Jesus wrote guilty and death in response to their question, but it is what she deserved from breaking the law. But don't miss the point. Jesus demonstrates to the crowd and to us that every single one of us is guilty of sin. Every single one of them and us deserves death as well. See, the Pharisees looked down on the woman. They thought they were better. And we might be tempted to do the exact same thing, to look down on other people. But the truth is we all have sinned. We may not have committed adultery, but anyone who has looked lustfully at another in their heart at one time or another has committed adultery. We may not have murdered someone, but anyone who has looked at someone else with hatred in their heart, it's the same as having murdered them. We have not loved God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And the Bible is very clear that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as every man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. See, there's only one person in that whole crowd without sin, and that's Jesus. Do you have a tendency to minimize your own sin? To think that God grades on a curve? To compare yourself to people at your work? People in your neighborhood? Maybe people in your church? 
It's easy to condemn them and to pronounce judgment on them just like the Pharisees. We can harden our hearts to those who are around us and maybe not throw literal stones, but talk bad about them behind their back, write them off in our hearts. But we cannot avoid the truth that we are like this woman. Save for the grace of Christ, I cannot stand before God at the judgment day. So we must recognize that I too am guilty. We must weep and mourn for our sin. We must cry out for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we must see people aright, fellow sinners in need of the grace of Jesus. Well, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they all walk away until there's only two people left. Verse 9, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Now we have to ask the question, what will Jesus do? I'm sure the woman is wondering. She saw what Jesus wrote. She knows that she's guilty. She knows that she deserves death. And standing before her is the one person who has the authority to do so. Jesus says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Well, Jesus is without sin. Will he throw the stone? Jesus responds, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus pardons her. He says, I don't condemn you. And just like that, she's free from condemnation. The judge of the universe has pardoned her. You can go no higher than that. But wait, you may ask, how can he do that? To uphold the law, death is the correct sentence. Somebody must pay. Well, the answer is somebody will pay. Someone will die, and it won't be the woman. It will be Jesus. The Pharisees will come back with a vengeance, with the Romans, and Jesus will be crucified on a cross. Jesus can forgive this woman because he knows that he is going to carry her sins to the cross. She can be free from condemnation because he is going to be condemned. He is the one who is going to carry the guilt of her sin. Isaiah 53, 5 put it this way, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. How must it have felt to be that woman? All of that guilt and shame, gone. The one who made her validated her and said to her face, I don't find anything wrong with you. You know, we need to hear that, don't we? We need to hear Romans 8.1, that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. We need to hear that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus has come to set you and I free from our sins. And Jesus gives her a new way to live. Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, from now on sin no more. In other words, because you are free from condemnation, you don't have to go back to your life of sin to find wholeness in your heart. I will fill your heart from now on with unconditional love. Follow me instead. She can trust and obey Jesus because Jesus has bought her back. Jesus shows in this story that his grace is greater than our sin and his forgiveness is greater than our shame. So we can trust him with our hearts. Many of us feel unknown and unloved. We cannot share all of who we are, for we think who would want us? The world condemns so easily, and we live lives, secret lives of quiet desperation. And we turn to sin, to deaden our hearts, thinking that it will provide comfort, but it only in the end provides pain. You see, Jesus knows everything about us, even our deepest, darkest sins. And he enters into our mess and he cleans us with his blood. He forgives us. He shows unconditional love to us. And he says to us, neither do I condemn you. So come to him for forgiveness and acceptance. Have you? Have you come to Jesus to be cleansed and forgiven? Don't give your life to religion. It only takes. It doesn't give. Instead, give your life to Jesus Christ. Trust in his grace. Live in his freedom. And he will give you a new way to live. Go and sin no more. A new way of life. A new way of living. Of obeying and trusting and following. Because we have been set free. In the end, Jesus shows us that his grace is greater than our sin and his forgiveness is greater than our shame. So you and I can trust him with our hearts. Let's do that today. Let us put our trust in the one who says, neither do I condemn you. Go and live a life free of sin for you are mine. That is the promise and the gift that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you showed us in this story a picture of someone whose deepest, darkest sin was exposed before your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the way that you related to her. Because in the way that you related to her, you show us that you love us and forgive us, and knowing our deepest, darkest sin, you do not condemn us, 
but instead you offer us forgiveness and grace and mercy and a new way to live. That we no longer have to live with guilt and shame, but we can live in joy and happiness and forgiveness. For you have freed us. God, by your grace and mercy, by the power of your Holy Spirit, let us live these lives uh, as we love those around us because you have set us free. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.